This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Big change is happening in Justin Trudeau's cabinet as some people will uh, be shuffled around. Some people will be retiring, I'm guessing. Some people uh, right out the door. Well, not quite that far. Uh, And, you know, I guess we're uh, a ways into the mandate now. Time to freshen things up just before the big tour across the country. To talk more about all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Queen's University labor and political history professor and on the line with us now. Hello, Christo. How are you today? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, We appreciate this. So why the cabinet shuffle now? What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, uh, it's not uncommon for governments you know, sometimes on a yearly basis or so to, um, to you know, to examine the cabinet, to, to look at, you know, strong performers, weak performers, to look at whether there's new priorities, whether there's new political and economic context, and try to make those changes. Um, so that's not out of the realm. And, you know, we are about 14 or so months into the government, um, so it's not exactly unheard of to do so. Um, some people are saying there are specific uh, concerns uh, I know you, in your comment, mentioned that we often maybe talk too much about uh, about Donald Trump, but some people are suggesting that with the you know the emergence of of the Trump phenomenon and he'll be taking office in in days now. Really, um, the the reality is that um, that he wanted to make new cabinet priorities to address that issue. And of course, um, you know, the, while he remains popular, uh, I think Trudeau is trying to be proactive to kind of keep that popularity. And there's also indications that there are going to be difficulties, whether it's on electoral reform or whether it's on the pipeline issue or whether it's on the general kind of sluggishness of the economy and a lot of metrics that, that maybe he wants to get out ahead in front of before he, you know, he starts slipping in the poll. How does the Trump election affect things in Canada? How does this change what he has for a team? Well, you know, in a general sense, any, 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 any American election... Uh, you know, affects Canada, um, and whether it was to be Clinton or Trump, um, the, the kind of new, the emergence of a new president um, always, you know, forces prime ministers and, and their governments to, to adapt. Um, and this is a special case because, one, it's a, it's a significant departure from the Obama regime, and Trump himself, from a personal and even political perspective, is somewhat uh, volatile in his, uh, in his approach. So I think it makes it uh, you know, tricky to address. And I think what Trudeau is trying to do is, uh, on the one hand, through his cabinet shuffle, you know, try to put people in places where they can relate to the regime. But even behind the scenes, some people like Ger- Gerald Butts has, have met with top Trump advisors and uh, some of his transition team people to try to assure them that you know, Canada has a strong relationship. Trudeau has put out messaging that has said as much. And I think he's really trying to ensure that 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 special relationship stays strong. It's not dissimilar in a lot of ways to how uh, Pierre Trudeau uh, struggled with such things with Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon in his uh, in, in the early 1970s, um, you know, built somewhat of a protectionist uh, policy, but you know Trudeau and his government were somewhat effective at kind of carving out a special relationship for Canada in that. So I think maybe they're trying to recreate something of that sort. You were talking about the meetings that have been going on in the past weeks and messages uh, sent being uh, back and forth. Obviously, this is a proactive step. You certainly can't argue with that. Um, do you think that these appointments have come out of those meetings, just trying to feel the water out? I mean, too, I, 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 it's, not, it's hard to tell. I think these appointments are, are largely, you know, are largely, you know, what would have happened regardless. I think that there's a you know a few promotions, a few demotions, a few kind of exit. I don't know if if this was directly affected in that sense because I don't see any kind of drastic changes. But I do feel that you know as people have stepped into roles that will have an international component, they've definitely been kind of vetted and and, and briefed on you know how to address the, the the Trump phenomenon and and his cabinet and his uh, you know party and whatnot. Uh, obviously, Stefan Dion and John McCallum out. Uh, your thoughts on those on on that decision or those decisions? Well, you know, they're, you know, they're not. It, it's interesting. You know, they're not done in politics. Of course, they're both kind of going on into diplomatic posts, um, which I think kind of serves both of them well in a lot of ways. I mean, they're 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 veteran politicians. I think that you know they they serve the government well because one of the criticisms of the 
of, of Justin Trudeau specifically was that he was light on experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not necessarily without criticism, but one of the counterpoints I think some liberals were able to effectively make was that, well, that's, that's fair enough, but he has very experienced people in his cabinet, like Stefan Dion and John McCallum. And right. I think that those people going, it can be considered a loss, but it could also be considered a sort of transition, that they've been part of the cabinet, they've been part of that transition process, and now they're ready to go on to new things. I mean, it, it could be internal differences, it could be things of those sorts, but because those are high-profile, you know, um, popular cabinet ministers, and in, in the one case you have a former liberal leader and a contender for prime minister, um, you know, I think this kind of move uh, is, is a, a politically savvy one because kind of everyone keeps face and it's not seen as anything controversial. Uh, let's talk about Stefan Dion first. Uh, obviously, um, uh, it looks at this point anyway that Christia uh, Freeland uh, will be made Minister of Foreign Affairs. How, how do you think uh, Dion and Trump would have fared together? Do you think this was a wise move, bringing in Freeland for this position? You know, it might be. I think a, a couple things. Freeland um, has spent a lot of time in the United States um, before coming up to, uh, to to be a part of Trudeau's team, kind of in the last parliament. She kind of came up and won a by-election. And she's kind of an expert, uh, to a certain degree, on on American politics and, 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 and economics, but specifically she's kind of studied the American uber-rich, um, and, and Trump is, is one of those American uber-rich people. So maybe there's a kind of understanding there. She knows those circles a little bit better. Stéphane Dion, of course, is more purely a Canadian politician, even on everything from his English not being as strong um, as, as Christia Freeland's or Christia Freeland's. Uh, that could be certainly a factor. It could also be the case that Dion is at the point of his political career where he might not wish to hold his tongue, um, and he's certainly, you know, maybe done everything he's wanted to do, and he'd be less willing to to kind of play ball. That could be part of it as well. Um, do you think Christia Freeland is someone who will hold hold her tongue? I mean, even during the uh, trade negotiation, she was quite vocal about who was being supportive and who wasn't. Yes, uh, and I think that's a fair point, but I, but I feel that she's, she, I think she's going to be a team player. I think she's a Trudeau loyalist as opposed to someone like Stéphane Dion, who, who had a, a history of, of maybe not, not, not challenging Trudeau directly, but, but not you know, maybe buying into the mania as quickly as others. He, for instance, um, felt Trudeau should kind of go through a, a nomination challenge in, 2000, uh, in the mid-2000s when he became an MP. Um, and Trudeau himself didn't really fight a, a challenge to Dion in the most recent uh, nomination for his seat. So it could be the case that uh, that uh, Freeland is, is is kind of more of a core Trudeau loyalist than than Dion, because again she come she came kind of to work with Trudeau after he had already been leader, and he kind of poached her from from a kind of high profile gig in the state. What about the timing of all of this, Christo? What about uh, the fact that it is just a couple of, uh, or you know, uh, I guess January twentieth now, so you know, ten days out, where we have, uh, of course, the inauguration of President-elect Trump. Uh, what about the timing of all this? Is it good that it's happening now? Uh, is there a reason it's happening now? Coincidence? I mean, I think it's a bit of all. I think it's a bit of all three. I mean, I think one thing is that if, if for whatever reason that. The choices were unpopular, kind of flopped. I guess the, you'd get the slate would be wiped clean with the inauguration. I think that it does show, I think Trudeau, a lot of the coverage in the media has shown that it was him trying to be proactive, trying to, to you know, prepare for this new political reality. And I think that shows that he's on the pulse of things. But I also think, it, you know, he's, it's been more than 14 months. And, you know, it, it kind of was time for a, a cabinet shuffle. Some of these changes are... You know, people, maybe people wanting to retire, that happens. I mean, Dion McCallum leaving, and, you know, you, you obviously have to replace them. Uh, Marianne Monsef uh, made a cabinet switch, and, you know, she was embattled as the electoral reform, uh, the democratic reform um, minister, and she's been uh, shuffled over, and I think that that's probably a politically wise move because she wasn't very popular in that role, uh, and many would say effective in that role. So I think it's a mixture of, you know, dealing with the Trump phenomenon, but also, you know, the kind of regular cabinet shuffles every provincial and federal government, you know, goes through time to time. How will pundits view these changes? I'm not 
sure. I, there was there were some people suggesting that there wouldn't be very many um, before this um, before the changes came through. Um, there was some really good data I was reading up on um, that came out just before Christmas, and it came from uh, Abacus uh, Bruce Anderson and a couple other people p- produced it. And they basically noted that for most of Trudeau's cabinet, the, there was very low negative scores uh, across the kind of Canadian populace, which would indicate, I think, that um, there wasn't a whole lot of need for a shuffle. Again, Trudeau is remaining popular. Um, his cabinet is for the, for the large degree popular, especially with the kind of broad liberal NDP green constituency that, that, you know, any of, that the liberal government needs to kind of form its majority. Um, so, but I, I do think they'll see it as, as a kind of proactive change. I don't think they'll see it as a government in crisis. I think that they'll see it as, you know, responding to the Trump reality uh, and taking the opportunity to, to make some changes that were needed um, and, and, you know, to, to solve some potential political issues, again, like Monsef on the electoral reform file. Christo, what do you think the relationship between Trump and Trudeau will be like? You know, I don't think it'll be great, frankly. Um, they just, personalities matter, and if you look at, if you look historically at, you know, prime ministers that have gotten along um, versus, you know, uh, with American presidents versus, you know, prime ministers who have had tensions, it's usually similar personalities. And, you know, Deacon Baker, for instance, you know, kind of a prairie boy, you know, uh, had a, you know, strong character, but he was a bit, a bit more old school, if you will, mm-hmm. didn't very much get along with the Kennedys, um, as opposed to Lester Pearson, you know, highly educated in a formal sense, very worldly, very cosmopolitan, and he got along much better with the Kennedys. You know, Trudeau, for instance, uh, the, the Trudeau Sr., uh, didn't at all get along well with Nixon, um, and if, but if conversely you look at Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan, both of them had similar ideological views, but they but they both had uh, you know similar worldviews and and both you know both being Irish Protestants. Trump and Trudeau are very different. They both come from you know intergenerational wealth and privilege, but you know one is you know uh, again seen as the the poster boy, the GQ boy for the world in terms of like you know young dashing, educated, progressive, and one is, you know, seen as the representative for the downtrodden blue-collar man um, in the Midwest, uh, juxtaposed to his billionaire status. I just don't see them getting along. Their rhetoric is different. Their image is different. There's there's a big age and generational worldview gap. I just, I can't see them as individuals having any of the kind of same relationship that, let's say, Barack Obama and, and Justin Trudeau would have, or even... Um, probably more strained than Obama and, and Harper. Let me ask you this, Christo, though. I mean, you know, uh, Trudeau, he, he's a charming guy. He's a peacemaker. He brings, whether you like his policy or, or politics or not, he seems to be able to bring two sides together. Will this be a real test for Trudeau? I mean, if he can pull this off and, uh, you know, be up there glad-handing him and, and, and keeping him in place and yet making deals with him? You know, I think it would be. I think it would be, you know, a real, a real coup for Trudeau to to you know keep Trump happy, but but also but also not to just to just un, like uniformly yeah and not sell out to all him. of his ideas right yeah. because I think he has a difficulty here uh, he has to he has to be diplomatic at the end of the day you can say the electoral college system is broken or not Trump is the duly elected person representative of the American people and as you know America is one of Canada's longest running allies we have to respect the will of those electors. Um, so, you know, Trudeau can't, you know, outright criticize him, but he also has to be careful because a lot of the people who would vote for him in Canada don't really like Mr. Trump. And if he's not seen as, say, criticizing Trump when he does things, for example, that target minorities or target, um, you know, maybe GLBTQ populations or what have you, um, he will find difficulty. And I think that's going to be his challenge is keeping that, you know, constructive relationship with the American government while not alienating Canadian progressives who, who care about the economy, but also care about the image of, of you know, a, a progressive Canadian prime minister kowtowing to, 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 to Donald Trump. Christo Abelis has been with us, Queen's University labor and political history professor. Christo, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Now let's talk about Barack Obama. Outgoing President Barack Obama will issue his final speech to the American people tonight, 9 o'clock in Chicago. Uh, And, of course, will, I'm sure, try to point out some of the great things that he has done over the past eight years and, as well, try to reassure, because the president-elect certainly hasn't done it, perhaps try to reassure people in this transition that America is going to be okay. To talk more about all of this, a man who's written a couple of speeches in his time, Michael Tobe is with us. He's a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and columnist. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it. Uh, again, let me ask, I'm fascinated by what you've done, um, and, and whenever I can, I'll sort of take it off uh, topic sure. here. But what's it like, what is it like for a speechwriter to sit there and listen to his or her own words being uttered by a leader? It's actually very interesting. Um, you know, I, I saw a number of occasions where Prime Minister Stephen Harper used one of my speeches. I saw it on TV several times. I saw it up front and close and personal a few times. And it's an extraordinary feeling to watch, not necessarily in terms of thumping your chest and, you know, basically using this egotistical line, it's me. (laughs) Basically, the thing that's interesting is, I mean, you can look at it a few different ways, and each speechwriter will obviously look at it in their own personal view. I thought it was actually just fascinating to look at my words being spoken by somebody else. Mm. Because most of my career, Scott, I've written for myself. I write columns for myself. I write book reviews for myself, feature pieces. And even when I do my own speeches, obviously I'm doing them for myself. I think it's really actually very fascinating to watch someone else, including a world leader like Stephen Harper, actually repeat some of the lines that I put forward that may have been edited a little bit, but I certainly know those are my words, my ideas, my phrases, and it's just a very, very fascinating way to look at an issue, because very often, although we do our own stuff, we don't usually hear others repeat the words and the lines that we've crafted, we went through, we discussed. It's a really very fascinating feeling, and the only way I can sort of explain it is you have to sort of be there and do it to understand the feeling I had, which was both proud, because I like seeing it, and I felt that I had done something decent for my country as well. I think it's an honorable thing to do. I was humbled by the the opportunity that I had. I never thought I would have something like that. And it was really just a very fascinating thing overall, something I'll probably remember for the rest of my life. Would it be similar to a songwriter listening to someone else sing their song? That's an interesting juxtaposition. Um, Yes, I think to some extent it would. I have actually heard musicians discuss different cover versions of their songs and how they've interpreted them, whether the person or the band actually followed the the same tone, Mm -hmm. maybe added a few words here and there, changed the beat to some extent, raised their voice, lowered their voice. But yes, I think it actually is very similar that way because you're the originator of, in this case, as you use the example, a song, and the song is then interpreted and reinterpreted by others, either making it better, uh, a little worse, or the same. I think it is actually very, very similar to that. So when you are watching your words being read, do you think to yourself, hmm, I wouldn't have delivered it that way. That's not where I wanted the inflection. That's not what I meant. That's not, do, do you think of it, do you ever look at it that way? Or, or perhaps the opposite, oh, I never thought of it delivered that way or with an accent there. You know, it's interesting. I actually try to take myself out of the equation. I don't look at either, I don't look at it in either direction simply because the words that I wrote in that case were not for me. Yes, I was the one writing them. I put them down on the computer screen. I handed them out. I edited them or went back and forth with different senior advisors to try and create a, a crisper version or a completely different version if the mood or the style or even the issue had changed for some reason. But no, I never try to put myself in it because you're right. If I had obviously given those speeches, I might have done it a little bit differently because the inflection in my voice is actually very different than Mr. Harper's, who I've known for the better part of 20 plus years. But at the same time, it's the way that he portrayed it and the way he comes across, which makes it his own words or his own speech. Even though I'm the person behind it, I'm just crafting the words. It's the presentation that matters the most. And if that is the way that, in this case, Stephen Harper chose 
to speak about it and the inflection in his voice and the way that he used certain dramatic pauses and various other things that is to his credit that he either followed the direction I had or chose to change it to some extent because he felt there was a better way to do it and I think in the end that's the way you have to look at it you're the one creating the words but the person who puts it out there that's his speech or her speech and that and really has to be looked at in that regard and how much is the leader involved in the process of writing of the speech yeah you know you you and I have talked about this before and I, I think I would put it very simply some are more active than others. There are some prime ministers, and I'm not going to name them all by list, but certainly you can go through books that have been written by either former speechwriters or former cabinet ministers, and they'll certainly discuss it. Some prime ministers are very, very active in the process, and other prime ministers in this country have been very inactive. So in other words, you know, the speech is created, it's given to the person at that time, and he just sort of runs with it right there and makes the edits maybe in the car ride going over, but has had virtually nothing to do with the actual creation of the speech. As I've said before, Stephen Harper was very, very active in the speech writing process. It doesn't mean that he was staring over me or, you know, he was over my shoulder as I was actually fixing or editing things, but he always loved to look at things. Words really matter to Mr. Harper. They always have and they always will. So he loved to be involved in the process. And you could often tell when a red mark came up here and there. You could tell who it was because A, I know his handwriting style, and B, I also know where he wants to try to intervene to some extent. Not because he necessarily disagreed with what I and the other speechwriters wrote for a particular speech, but because he just saw it a different way. His vision was a little bit different, or he felt there were other things that needed to be added that maybe were not concentrated on or mentioned at all. So that's the way I would sort of look at it. Mr. Harper was very, very involved in the process. Although we didn't meet with him a lot, you always knew that he was there, and you knew that his influence was there to some extent. Would you like to write for Donald Trump? You know, it's funny. I've actually been asked this before, and I, I, I was quite startled the first time I was asked because I hadn't really thought about it very much. The funny thing is, Scott, and I know you may laugh at it, I would actually. Yeah. And the reason I could why, see that. Yeah, but the reason why is it would be such a challenge yeah. to deal with this man yeah. <laughs> his personality. But the other thing that's actually kind of interesting as well is that Donald Trump is trying to evolve what we would call modern small-c conservatism. You know, Trumpism is sort of starting to compete to some extent with conservative thought. That's why this journal that recently was announced, American Greatness, is going to be kind of fascinating because all these different intellectuals are going to write about the Trump administration and will try to evaluate what makes sense or doesn't make sense in terms of how Trumpism can survive in, in this society as well as small-c conservatism. So for me, it would be fascinating to learn Donald Trump's process. I'd love to learn the ideas of people around him and what they sort of think are the best things to employ in, in a speech. And I just think it would be a fascinating challenge for anyone, even if it's a frustrating one, because you would just sort of learn more about the man who, quite frankly, didn't discuss much about policy during the campaign, discussed more about himself. I'd love to see where things go, and I think that any speechwriter in that administration, while it could be an exceedingly difficult job, I think it would be an incredibly fascinating one at the same time. Michael Tobe is with us, uh, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and columnist, of course. Uh, why is this speech tonight with Barack Obama? Uh, it's at 9 o'clock in Chicago. Why is yep. this speech important, or is it important? It's important, obviously, to U.S. President Barack Obama. It's obviously important to his legacy. You know, we can go back and forth in terms of what he has or hasn't done. Quite frankly, I'm not a fan of Mr. Obama. I don't agree with his policies. I don't agree with his politics. I don't think he really accomplished very much, quite frankly, over eight years. But if you look at it from away from the partisan leanings and you look at it just with a bird's eye view, this is his final moment in his city, Chicago. This is where his, you know, Illinois is where his political career started. Everything began there, and it will all end there. So you have a, basically a whole 360 in his career. He gets to come out to a very partisan audience who really has either enjoyed most of what he's done as president 
or a fair bit of it anyway, and he gets to talk about all the things that he's done, including you know, his work in Cuba, maybe you know, getting rid of Osama bin Laden. He can discuss how he handled the economic crisis, and he can basically craft a speech along with the help of his speechwriters in such a fashion that he looks like a conquering hero, even if, quite frankly, many people, including myself, think the exact opposite of him. This is your moment to shine. So it may not be the most important speech of Barack Obama's career, but it will be for him, and it could be for some historians, the defining moment, or shall we say the final stamp on Obama's quote-unquote legacy as president, and it will be obviously evaluated by people for a few days, because of the differences in the way that the Obama administration and the, you know, the eventual Trump administration are going to operate. So this is really Barack Obama's big moment in the sun, or his last moment in the sun, so to speak. And before he heads off in the sunset, he wants the world to know what he feels he accomplished as president. Is this farewell and speech different from others in the past? Um, I think it will be. I mean, every, every president or... Every person who writes a speech or gives a speech obviously has a different impression of what he or she has accomplished in politics. So you could obviously speak to a senator, a House representative, or a former president, and he or she will look at things in a very different fashion, maybe even different than we actually have heard about or read about, or even that people around them sort of perceive. What will make this speech unique, I guess, is this is obviously the first African-American who ever served as president, and he's going to go out on a historical note. He came in on a historical note, he goes out on a historical note. So the question is whether he will try to relate this speech not only to the political accomplishments that he believes he made in office, but also his belief on how, say, the country has come together, how civil rights have moved forward, where the, where the black community in the United States currently stands, and his role as, shall we say, a historical figure and a person who has sort of led the march or led the troops in a certain fashion, I think he's going to basically enjoy this one particular moment, not because he's the voice of progressive politics, but because he was the voice of a generation, maybe in his view. Again, it sounds very airy-fairy, and if you don't like Barack Obama, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But every president and every world leader should go out on his or her own terms. So he's going to go out with a blaze of glory. It's going to be a very positive, upbeat speech. And I, I doubt very much it will be negative. Maybe near the end, as he talks about the transformation from the Obama administration to the incoming Trump administration, and he may talk about the concerns people have, but I think that Obama still has sort of an old-school mentality that other former presidents, you know, the, the two Bushes, Bill Clinton and others, had, which is even if you don't like the person who's replacing you, you don't necessarily take a knife and stab them in, in the back a hundred times like Brutus did to Caesar and leave it at that. Hmm. You try to leave it as, I'm not, you know... This is my legacy. I'm proud of it. I'm not sure what we're heading into. There are things to be concerned about. But as Americans, we have to unite around our president and ensure that he, that being Donald Trump, has a good transformation and a good movement into the White House and is successful. I think actually both Obama and Trump have said this themselves. You always want to see others succeed in that post because it's so important. And Mr. Obama has certainly emphasized it. He actually emphasized it just before he met Donald Trump. And I think that's what will be very interesting about this speech, where he ends it off and where he sort of says things are going in the United States combined with his own legacy. I think you've hit the nail right on the head, and that was my next question. People are fearful. Some people are fearful. Um, will he address the divisiveness? I mean, this has been a transition unlike no other. I mean, um, boy, just by the sheer uh, uh, things that have been said, the tweets, the insults, the and such, uh, will, will he address any of that? I mean, it, it certainly isn't a traditional, you know, handover. No, I agree. Well, it's, it's the theory of the fear of the unknown. There are a lot of armchair warriors who right now believe that they know exactly what Donald Trump is going to do for the next four years and possibly the next eight years if he wins re-election. I am sort of, I've pushed back a little bit on that in the sense that I'm sitting back to wait and see what happens. The first 100 days of any new presidential administration are often seen, for whatever reason, 
to be the most important. Those first three-plus months are the time where you sort of go through your feeling-out process, you've dipped your toes in certain waters, you've brought forward certain policies, the bridge-building between you and Congress has already started, and people get to sort of understand what your new administration is about, at least at those early stages. Um, I don't think that Mr. Obama will necessarily create a fear-mongering stage, because I don't think that benefits him at all, and I don't think it benefits the country at all. Without question, he will obviously be concerned about what he sees, and he knows full well that Donald Trump is going to tear apart things that he believes are part of his own legacy, that being Barack Obama's. So that is obviously going to happen to some degree. But at the same time, you can't fear the unknown when you actually don't know what the unknown is to fear. We don't know what Trump is going to do in office. As you said right off the bat, with the exception of building a wall with Mexico and making them pay for it, we don't know a lot of his policies. And quite frankly, I don't even think the Trump administration has a laundry list of policies quite yet. Ideas, certainly, but probably not things that have been formulated several steps ahead. So I think you have to sort of take a wait-and-see approach with Donald Trump, the president-elect, and you have to see what will happen. It's nice to say that you know exactly what Mr. Trump will do as president. Quite frankly, Scott, you don't know, I don't know, no one knows. I don't even think Mr. Trump himself knows. <laughs> and for that reason, let's see what happens. And I think Barack Obama will probably, and I don't give him much credit, obviously, in life, I think he will, because he's old school, will allow that sort of flavor to exist, that let's see what Donald Trump does before we condemn him. Do you think after Barack Obama's speech tonight, we will hear a tre- uh, see a tweet from Trump on his performance? <laughs> no question. This is, Donald Trump cannot contain himself in that. And as you said, wouldn't it be something if Justin Trudeau, he said right off the top, Justin Trudeau was criticizing or commenting about Canadian actors and actresses, Donald Trump always takes the bait. He cannot leave it alone, not just because he does these 3.30 in the morning tweets that we all know about. He just has a very thin skin when it comes to criticism, when it comes to personal... How does he deal with that moving forward, though, Michael? I mean, that's the the big question. What happens after January 20th? Does it get taken away? I mean, are we going to see the same thing and affecting stock prices and international relations and such? Yeah, well, look, I mean, obviously the the markets are actually quite good uh, before he actually comes in, which is to his benefit, so that's great. In terms of how he handles things, he will have three major advisors in his administration that being Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, and now Jared Kushner, his son-in-law. Within, these, or within the purview of these three people, all very intelligent, talented, and have lots of ability in different ways, shapes, or forms, even though the, there is a bit of a dark cloud over, over Mr. Bannon in particular, but he certainly is knowledgeable. He knows how to handle Trump to some degree. My hope is that these three advisors, in their floating roles, will at least tell Mr. Trump, to calm down when it comes to doing everything on Twitter, to keep his social media, I guess, vision or view as small as possible, and to let politics operate in such a fashion that, yes, if he wants to tweet occasionally, do it through his official Twitter account, which he'll have pretty soon. He takes over Barack Obama's old uh, POTUS account, the President of the United States Twitter account, and will have it. He'll trade it. Um, through there, not to say too much through Twitter, but to let his actions speak through his words of his speeches, to his addresses to Congress, to his State of the Union addresses, to things that he does on a personal basis between individuals or for, for large groups, and not worry about having a, a huge social media presence on Twitter and other factions, because that really doesn't benefit him at all. I know he likes it. I know they're short, sweet, and to the point, and he loves throwing them out. Lots of us do. But I think he has to realize that if he's going to be president of the United States and, more importantly, be an effective leader, he's got to cut back the Twitter. It's going to be hard, and those advisors and others are going to have a real challenge on their heads to actually figure out what to do to stop him from doing it. And it's pretty hard to obviously contain Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to listen to much of anybody, But let's hope that the job he's about to take and the important role that he's going to take in his life is going to be so important to him that he realizes, as much as I like to tweet nonstop every day, maybe I've got to cut back on it just a little bit 
to make sure that the presidents of the United States, that position that I hold, remains as important now as it will hopefully for many years past them. Good point. Michael Tobe has been with us, former Steve, uh, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and much-read columnist. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Pentagon's weapons testing office says that ground-braced interceptors cannot be counted upon to shoot down nuclear missiles from places like Iran or North Korea. Every so often, North Korea starts rattling the sabers. Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert. RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? Doing good, Scott. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Yeah, uh, important. Your thoughts, uh, do they have the capability? Uh, it seems that every so often the leader of North Korea rattles his, you know, some cages uh, just to keep his people oppressed and his regime healthy. Is that what this is about, or is this a real threat? No, it's, it's definitely it's a real threat. Uh, they, they're getting more advanced all the time over in North Korea with their missiles. They're going to be test-launching another intercontinental ballistic missile, which is the biggest, fastest uh, flying missiles they can have. Uh, and they're the ones capable of reaching over to North America. So that's obviously of a concern. And uh, they also have developed, supposedly, uh, smaller nuclear warheads that could go in smaller missiles that could perhaps be launched from a submarine uh, off the coast of the United States. And what they're saying is the missile defense systems that the U.S. currently has is not up to snuff to guarantee that they'll be able to take out one of those missiles if they're launched. How come we spend time worrying about China and Russia, and yet we're useless against someone like North Korea? Well, we need to be worried about everybody these days, actually. We've got uh, Iran uh, is testing more missiles against uh, the tree that's against them. They're testing more of them. They can cover the span of uh, Europe, but they can't quite yet reach North America. But Everybody's only so far away from it. There's an estimate now, Scott, that uh, North Korea will probably be about four years away from having a missile that can reach uh, North America. Uh, what about testing? Because uh, obviously when these tests go awry, it's, it's just as bad PR as it is good when they're saber-rattling. How far have they come with this in far, as far as tests and such? Well, they've lobbed a couple of missiles over Japan, which has got Japan quite uh, scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're making the threats about this. But, but the issue that's coming up is, you know, we even had the incoming president-elect talking about upgrading their nuclear capability. And part of that is the missile defense shield, which has been talked about since Ronald Reagan's time. Um, and it's being reviewed right now. In fact, Canada has under review whether or not they're going to join into a, missile, a North American missile defense program with the U.S. That should be coming out uh, sometime early this year, the report on whether we'll join in on that or not. Uh, after the 80s and the supposed end to the Cold War, did we sort of relax all of this stuff? Uh, is it time to draw attention to it again? Well, relaxed, and there was also treaties uh, for, for non-nuclear proliferation, which also included uh, not developing all kinds of defense missile shields. That was part of the agreements. And, you know, Scott, the technology, people may not know this, but the technology that runs the nuclear equipment is from the 60s. It is old, old, old technology. It's not like it's been upgraded. Uh, to do anything. And same with the, uh, the anti-missiles. Uh, uh, the technology for that is really quite old. And uh, the technology to build new missiles, uh, Russia's got some wholly capable inter-ballistic inter- uh, missiles they can reach. Uh, they put out false warheads, dummy warheads outside of them. Uh, they're very tough to defend against. Uh, Donald Trump uh, t- has tweeted, it won't happen. Do you think he will take a tougher approach on all of this than the past administration? Well, he's certainly a, a, a better negotiator who seems to deal with problems when they need to be dealt with. You know, we're used to all politicians kicking the can down the road on this sort of thing. And we've been doing that in Canada since the 1980s. You know, 2005, we, you know, we uh, turned down getting involved with the U.S. missile defense. 2009, we thought about it again. And as I say, we're thinking about it now. But I mean, you know, the bet is probably pretty good that we're not going to get involved with it based on the two governments we're going to have in place. Uh, China, are they keeping a hand, a handle on uh, North Korea? Are, are they not overseeing everything and sort of keeping these guys in line? Well, th- that's the claim from uh, the incoming Trump administration, that he believes that they've got great control, but they're not exercising it. And perhaps it suits uh, China's uh, own political goals to have North Korea out there rattling their sabers, causing some problems, keeping a distraction going. You know, but where this also ties into, Scott, is all of the hacking and problems 
that we've been talking about that are coming up that are prevalent. You know, if North Korea can steal the info how to make a better rocket and start building it, we're in trouble. And don't forget, we had a Chinese spy in Canada not more than a few years ago who stole the uh, the plans for some of our Navy ships that we were building. So everybody's out looking for this information all the time. And if they get it, it becomes dangerous that much quicker. Has the world taken a different tone, Ross? I mean, it just seems that there's more uh, three-way, four-way battles going on in the world. Uh, is, is this the safest time that we've had in, in the past couple of decades, do you think? Yeah, there's been some talk about that, that we're actually in a worse position now than we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis, actually, because of how unsettling everything is and the ability uh, of people to, ha- to deliver uh, these warheads and these weapons of destruction. So we've seen, you know, the Russians have taken their ships and put, put them through the English Channel. We just saw a skirmish the other day between the U.S. Uh, and Iran with some shots fired, some warning shots fired there. We've seen the jets uh, buzzing each other. Uh, you know, we certainly see it. China's building their little uh, military base out in the South China Seas. So times are definitely getting a little bit riskier. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, uh, the Facebook page, Crime Power and Politics, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. As always, Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much, Scott. Let's bring in Laura Greco, Senior Scientist, Union of Concerned Scientists, and she is on the line now. Hello, Laura. How are you today? Hi, fine, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, we greatly appreciate that. What are your thoughts about North Korea's capabilities at this point? Well, uh, let's see, North Korea is certainly very determined to continue to improve its nuclear weapons capabilities and ballistic missile capabilities. They've um, put a lot of time and effort into testing the system. Um, while I'm not an expert on their missile program, they seem to be making progress, and it's something that we really do need to take seriously and think about. Uh, you know, I would suggest using all diplomatic efforts possible to uh, put a moratorium on their missile def- on their missile tests and nuclear tests. I think that would be a really a primary goal for this next administration. Uh, many for years kind of blew off North Korea and in, in the sense that, that any time they sa- saber-rattle, they're doing it more to keep their people opp- oppressed and, and make it look like they're doing something and, and the regime healthy. Is it different now? Well, I think it's just years have gone by, and with dedicated effort, you know, they don't have enormous financial resources, but they've had time and, and really made this a priority for themselves to keep moving forward. So I think it's, I don't think it's wise to discount um, their capabilities to take that seriously. Uh, I think that that's uh, certainly, um, they've made progress and uh, they've been uh, testing a range of different types of missiles. And, um, you know, there's, uh, there's um, a program, as you know, a satellite launch program, the launch of very small, not very capable satellite, but they were able to put something into orbit. Um, they've demonstrated a range of shorter range missiles, and they've been talking about uh, testing, which they haven't done, testing an um, intercontinental range ballistic missile. So that's something's not yet been done, but there, there are a couple of candidate uh, missiles that they might try to uh, test you know, in the coming months. What's in this for North Korea? It's not like they're being threatened by anyone, are they? Are they being challenged by anyone? I think their uh, primary goal is for the regime to uh, stay in place. Mm-hmm. The, the elites like, things, like, like to remain in power. And I think certainly one of the ways to do that is to amplify the threats that it sees from the outside to, uh, to the domestic population to, to heighten those threats. Um, and I think that they do see having a, you know, it may have been, and again, this is, I'm not an expert on this, and I certainly can't read the tea leaves and, mm-hmm. and tell you what they think, but I imagine that they um, see having these capabilities as a, as a uh, security blanket and, and something that, that protects them from being invaded or challenged. And, and uh, certainly if they've tried to demand the world take them seriously, and this is really one of their ways to try to do that, is to demonstrate this you know, 
awesome power of nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. How do other countries handle this diplomatically? It seems like it's been an ongoing problem forever that, that, that it really doesn't have a solution. Uh, Trump has tweeted it won't happen when they talk about um, obviously embellishing their, their stockpiles and such. Is this stoking the fire? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, there's certainly a, ga- uh, a game of mirrors when somebody says something and somebody feels the other party feels the need to react or amp up the uh, the rhetoric. Uh, so I, I think uh, Donald Trump tweeting saying it won't happen. Um, I, I think North Korea has tested. I don't think there's any reason to believe that they won't continue to test. Mm-hmm. Um, there's they they have. Uh, ever shown every desire to do so and every capability. You know, they, their tests fail sometimes, but all, you know, nascent missile programs have failures, and you learn from failures and improve your systems. So I think not taking that seriously, um, it may, in- conversely, incentivize the North Koreans to demonstrate that to Donald Trump, the next administration, to take us seriously. Hmm. So I don't think that that's an approach that uh, challenging him in that way, I don't think it's an approach to have the other party stand down. It may be more of an incentive. Um, but it isn't even all that clear to me um, that they're reacting to outside events in that way. You know, I think um, we'll have to, you know, observe and see. How concerned are you that North America is not adequate, adequately protected against these sorts of missiles? Yeah, well... Thankfully, those missiles don't exist yet, and um, you know, to to develop an intercontinental ballistic missile that's armed with a nuclear weapon requires actually not just two pieces, but sort of three big technolo- technological pieces that you have to um, accomplish. And one is, of course, an ICBM missile that can go that far, and that is not a trivial task. That requires a lot of testing and improvements in quality control and uh, and there are, you know, the missile experts uh, of North Korea's missile program, again, I'm not one, you know, have some arguments about how far along they are, but I think um, everyone understands that it's a serious program. The next is uh, having a working nuclear weapon that is small enough to fit on your missile. And so meaning it has to be light enough that you could put it on the missile and have that missile carry it. So North Korea has completed five nuclear detonations, and I think um, you've seen other countries get to that many tests, and they've, you know, accomplished the ability to miniaturize their nuclear weapons small enough to put on a missile. So um, I don't have any insight in the intelligence, but it's reasonable to conclude that they might be able to do that. And then another piece that they have to do is uh, build a reentry vehicle, which is once you launch uh, this missile that has a nuclear weapon on it, it goes a long way, and it goes up into space, so up through the atmosphere, which goes up to about 100 kilometers, and then it travels through space. Then it has to re-enter to come down to its target on the ground, and at that point, it's going really quickly, and there's enormous uh, stresses and heat on that, you know, the package that you're carrying. So you need to be able to build something that can withstand the heat without damaging the package, um, and that won't wildly send it off course. So that's a technology that North Korea would also have to master and demonstrate in order to build something that they could, you know, transmit a nuclear weapon at long distances. So again, they they seem to show every indication that they're interested in doing it and trying to do it. They haven't demonstrated those things yet. So, uh, um, and I think while North Korea um, is a really difficult country, um, they don't appear to be suicidal. So I don't think that they're going to uh, sort of unbidden <clears throat> launch an ICBM at the United States, which would surely bring the end of their regime and, you know, quite a bit of their country. They're, they're, they, they would understand clearly that retaliation would be swift and punishing. Yeah. So unlike, of course, certain, un- unlike, of course, certain terror organizations, which is even scarier when you come to think about it. Yeah, well, right, yeah. because they don't have 
if you don't have a return address. But yeah. that's one thing about uh, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, they have a return address. You know exactly where they came from. Yeah. Right. And no, and a terrorist can't master some of those. That's really a state activity. So they, they understand that. What sort of defense system do you need to stop one of these? I mean, even if it goes off course by, uh, uh, I don't know, a few kilometers, a few hundred kilometers, what have you, it's got a nuclear warhead attached to it. Mm -hmm. So can you just shoot it out of the sky or will you spread the nuclear waste everywhere? Well, that's a great question. So um, certainly as long as there have been uh, ICBMs, there's been a desire to figure out how to defend against them because they're really scary. Um, and it's pretty tough to do because they are going uh, very quickly, you know, seven kilometers a second or so. Um, and you have to, there's a lot of pieces to figuring that out. They, you know, their whole transit, you know, from launch to when they would potentially detonate above the ground is, you know, it's a half an hour is what we're talking about. So you have to be able to detect that it's launching, be able to track it, cue your interceptor and have your interceptor uh, kill vehicle, you know, find that warhead, pick it out of whatever else is with it. If it's, you know, a bunch of junk from the launch or, for example, you might build decoys. Mm. The system would have to figure out which is a real warhead amongst p- potentially many, many decoys and then uh, have that kill vehicle sort of uh, maneuver itself um, the way that the U.S. has tried to do it. The kill vehicle maneuvers itself at high speed to ram into the uh, into the warhead. So it would, it would destroy the warhead with force of impact, and so that would, be, and that kind of destruction would happen. It would preclude it from from the nuclear weapon actually detonating right. um, as a weapon. It would just you know there'd be some junk there that you wouldn't like, but much better than a nuclear detonation. So it's it's a challenging um, endeavor, uh, to be sure. You know, uh, and the U.S. has been working on. You know, a number of different systems which would try to counter ballistic missiles of different ranges. So, you might have heard of, uh, like, so the Patriot missiles are very short range. That's not relevant, you know, for an ICBM. Neither is the SAD system. These types of systems are meant to counter shorter range, you know, missiles in the theater. So, the only system that the U.S. has, you know, made uh, that that's that's dedicated to defending against ICBMs against the homeland is the ground-based mid-course defense system. Uh, so that has, most of the interceptors are based in Alaska, and there are a few in uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. <clears throat> Obviously a discussion that is going to be continuing. Laura Greco is with us, Senior Scientist, Union of Concerned Scientists. Laura, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Sure. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.